this podcast, Strange, Rare, and Peculiar, is for kind of those in the know about homeopathy, deepening your knowledge, bringing you more information about what you need to know, and maybe what you can leave aside about homeopathy. Homeo what? Homeo what? underway. Here we go. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Here we are to talk about one of the coolest people. One of the coolest people? I think so. Really? And and maligned, most maligned. Most maligned, definitely maligned. She's a trailblazer. She was a trailblazer. And yes. she was Ms. Melanie. Do her French name. Can you do it with the right accent? Oh, Duvely. <laughs> Is that how you would say it? Yeah, uh, Melanie Duvely. Um, D apostrophe H E R V I W L Y. See, I, I want to hear someone with proper French, really. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hahnemann. Melanie Hahnemann. Yes. Right, we're going to talk about Melanie Hahnemann. This do you remember go- the first conversation? Sorry. No, I was going to say this conversation <laughs> could go in all sorts of different directions. It sure could. Do you remember the first conversation we had about her? Did we have a fight? <laughs> well, it was interesting because it was, you know, you fancy yourself historian of homeopathy, which you have the, the street cred to back up. Mm. And? And I'm a chick. Yeah. No. So you kind of look down your nose like... Oh, at the time I looked down my nose? Yeah. Well, you were saying something that I found um, didn't really stack up. The evidence didn't really stack up to the conclusions. Well, and do well, you feel the same it. way now? Um, I, I, it's an interesting place we're starting at the end. Um, I would say that I have learned a couple of factoids about the life of Melanie Hahnemann, which don't necessarily add up to the fact that she was a, can An amazing, go ahead. A gold digging piece of work. Yeah. That, um, behaved disgracefully. And has really, and there's not, not that, true, simply and, not true. And now my, not my opinion. Um, and, and has been really, really written out of homeopathy history. Which I think is, is crazy town. Right. I, I agree with that part being crazy town, but there's, I mean, I want to get to the four things later okay. that, that need explanation. She did four things that are inexplicable. But I want to, I want to start with the idea of her being a gold digger and how amazing that term is. Well, why don't we, Okay. Because if, as my research suggests, Hahnemann really was an alchemist in the true sense of the 18th and 19th century word, meaning he had insights into chemistry and medicine, Mm -hmm. field of medical alchemy, um, that influenced the discoveries and not just the discoveries in homeopathy, because he he sort of made a few discoveries, like you know when he was in Collins Materia Medica, and you know made this had this revelation about the law of similars. But but rather as he evolved over time, he was utilizing ancient materials mm-hmm. and putting together concepts from various places that had not been put together prior. Correct. And what that means is, you know, we people think about alchemy as being, you know, sort of from Harry Potter and Nicholas Flamel, Nicholas mm. Flamel being an actual, you know, alchemist, but or people, you know, thinking of charlatans turning lead into gold. But but in actuality, there is an entire, you know, perspective and understanding of alchemy that is the sort of origins of, of chemistry and pharmacology that came together. So what does this mean with Hahnemann and, and the gold digger statement is, I think it's interesting that interesting that one of Hahnemann's primary biographers, Richard Hale, mm. um, is, it, it, in my research, seems to be the person who may have known some of the secrets and left us a lot of breadcrumbs. And that term gold digger, I think is no accident, mm. that that is the term that's often used uh, about Mel- about Melanie and her att- and her intentions. Mm. And so when you first brought that up, when we were having 
some of our first, you know, conversations, checking each other out in terms of homeopathy cred. <laughs> Heated conversations. <laughs> yeah, that, but that one, it really, it, it really struck me because it's, it's so commonly thought of in that way. I, I would totally agree with that. And for me, when I said that, and when I say it now, I say it tongue in cheek. Sure. Um, and for another reason as well. But at, at the time, you know, I think that's just what we do kind of, if we're looking at at the arc of someone's life, or if we're looking at a topic from a historical perspective, you know, we, we talk about it. Even in this book, you know, I was having a look at Rima Handley's book earlier today. She devotes half a page to Hahnemann's life um, from his teenage years to meeting um, Hahnemann's first wife. So that's... Um, and. Uh, and those are those are crucial years because those years would include Vienna, Transylvania, exactly. Erlanger. Yeah, and it's just uh, and so my point yeah, totally. And so you know, I was just going, oh, hang on, that's not very in depth. Well, but, but that's the purpose. I mean, you're talking about the, her book, a homeopathic no, love story, so. right? But what I'm also saying is that that's I think what I've done with Melanie. I think it's just like, oh yeah, boom, I've heard four things about her and, yeah. and gone, okay, move uh-huh. on to more important matters. But I think you know what. I've learned from hearing you on a number of occasions is that my four points in isolation don't equal the the malignment, the malignment. Mis- I, I, I was having <laughs> well, being maligned. She has been maligned. So is that a malignment? I don't know. I've never heard it used. A lack quite. of alignment. <laughs> she needed a chiropractor. <laughs> she needed an adjustment. <laughs> but it's. Um, but and this the th- is the thing with history, though. I right. mean, right? Because people. I think it's the thing with human nature. People get taken out of context. And it happens a lot in homeopathy. Well, and we project a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I don't think, and, and while we're kind of clearing our throats on this one, I don't think Hale helps. I don't think he's any fan of Melanie. I would disagree. Oh, wow. Have you read all of the letters and all the supplemental materials? No, not really. I just I so, read, you know, what he wrote about the, you know, the early days in Paris or something. So I, I think he may not have been a fan, although I'm unsure about whether or not I would put those words in his mouth, mm. but he did include in the supplements in Hahnemann's Life and, and Work, Volume 2, the letters um, that... and The letters between them? The letters between... Um, well, Melanie and several people and Hahnemann's children. So all of this idea that how much they hated her, mm. you know, there are letters from um, uh, Amelie. I think it was from Amelie. Uh, was she the youngest or second youngest? Uh, I forget. Anyway, but that, yeah. calling her our little mother, you know, and, you know, as as we're talking about this, can I add one other thing while we're talking about sort of the way that history gets mis- misrepresented going forward and the projections that people put on? You know, I've heard I heard something not too long ago that really tweaked my uh, irritation about misrepresentation. And it was, yeah. you know, people talk about Hahnemann and money and that he, he didn't have any money. And, and I heard someone refer to it as the Hahnemann miasm, sort of saying homeopaths need to get out of this idea that a homeopath can't make money and that Hahnemann put that on. That's just, it's just not true. Hahnemann certainly had lean years. Um, and I think that when you are trying to change an entire system and you're willing to do anything to get there, there are going to be some financial consequences. And he definitely had his times of having to leave a few places um, trying to find his spot. But by the time he gets, you know, a, you know, halfway through his life, yeah. that was not a concern. And he had considerable wealth. And by the time they got to Paris, you know, they, they actually lived quite a fine life. Well, they, they sure did at the end. In fact, I read somewhere... It really stopped me cold, actually. Go a little off. Oh, no, we're on topic. But um, that, I mean, it was he died a millionaire um, in in modern money. Yeah. And, and if that's the case, then that really, that that's the thing. I mean, who, who knows if he had 10 bucks or 100 bucks. But um, that's the thing that really made me question um, that, that first point about Melanie being a gold digger because yeah. she was loaded. She was a very wealthy woman. But she did in renounce, and of herself. She was, but she did renounce her family's wealth when she 
went to study art, and she and her mother, you know, the mother was a piece of work. She was a mad person. Yeah, Melanie's mother was. Um, uh, she was a bit of a shrew, and she. The, in, in Melanie's words, her mother was jealous of her and would, um, as Melanie went from being sort of a child to a woman, huh. uh, the mother got really jealous. And Melanie was the kind of kid who would rather read books and sit off quietly than go to the balls and the dances. Um, when there was an invitation, Melanie's mother made her go and then got mad at her for being, you know, uh, much loved and being a good dancer, so the she was in, like, yeah, yeah, center of attention. Her mother didn't like that, so I got a quote. Can I read you this one? Yep. She hated her mother. Her mother detested and maltreated us. Her rages resembled madness. My mother, in her rages, which I never provoked, <laughs> <laughs> tore uh, tore out my hair in handfuls. Uh, made my body black and blue by yep. battering it. She disfigured me with her nails because she said I was prettier than she. I had too much spirit. Uh, one terrible day, I was in the country uh, with my mother. My father was in Paris. My mother got uh, herself into such a fury that she nearly killed me. I was 15 years old. She took a long, sharp knife and threw it at me. I lost my respect for her. Uh, for the first time. I threw myself upon her in order to save her from a certain crime. And I fought with her. The knife wounded me in several places, but I tore myself away and I fled to Paris in the middle of the night. My father realized, oops, at last he would have to take sides and preserve me from death. And I got sent away to board with my painting teacher. Yeah. So that's the way, I'm not sure where that quote comes from. She, um, it, I'm, iPad. <laughs> from your iPad. So in um, uh, <laughs> Confidential Notes on the Life of Madame Hahnemann, mm. uh, Supplement 156 in Hale's Life and, um, Life and Work. So she, um, Melanie writes about how she was adopted by you know, that art teacher. So she may mm. have been sent off, but had such, you know, such affection mm. um, for, that, um, for those people. And she says... Um, at 18 years of age, I studied art anatomy in a lecture room to which I had access when the pupils were absent. Can we just discuss for a second that? And one of my favorite things in studying the history of medicine was um, the courses that we did on um, the old uh, studies of anatomy and how there were the anatomists who were basically the you know the the um, mechanics, mm. and then there were the artists who documented it and looking at the style of anatomical art throughout the ages and always wish somebody would do a movie about this. There'd be um, a lot of nudes in that movie. There'd be a lot of nudes. There'd be a lot of blood and guts, mm. maybe just the guts. But um, Oh, I see. Right. But this would be, you know, the... the um, oh. But what's so cool is there were, you know, there were these really tight relationships because there, the anatomist and his artist would have to, you know, have, they would have a, they would develop a style together, right? So the artist influenced the anatomist and vice versa. And um, gosh, just looking at those books, they are absolutely stunning. Stunning. So just say, say it again, because, you know, because I didn't know that. Yeah. So she, as an 18-year-old... 18 years old. ...is mm-hmm. studying art, art anatomy. anatomy. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? It, it, so she was 18. That so that no, was 1818. Yeah, no, I'm right. just putting it in the context mm. of, you know... So, so, but is she in a... She's she's not the muse being painted. No, she's no, no. studying the body, studying anatomy. Anatomy. And it's... So, you know, at that time, that's how... You know, they weren't taking photographs and videos... You know, they weren't making YouTube videos of this. So there was an actual... What, YouTube didn't exist in 1918? <laughs> you know, oddly enough, no. Um, <laughs> artists were employed to document mm. medical, you know, procedures, medical um, discoveries, right? It's, it's a fascinating subject. So anyway, she says, um, at 18 years of age, I studied art anatomy in a lecture room to which I had access when the pupils were absent. Of course, because women were not, you know allowed to do this work is one thing that's important. The other thing is, you know, 1818, this is, this is um, still Germany is the seat of sort of medicine and its discoveries, but it's moving to Paris, you know, bedside medicine, hospital-based and institutionalized medicine is starting to happen in Paris. So this was, you know, this, you've got art, you've got culture, and you also have 
medicine becoming mm. right so important at that time. She says, after having studied the external part of the human frame, I wished also to study its internal parts. And then, in spite of its loathsome side, I went right through the study of anatomy as the doctors do. I did this as I do everything in the best way possible to me. I remained 16 years with um, Monsieur and Madame Latierre and was the soul of the family. Uh, Latierre, the father, left me by an act of will when dying, the two children of his eldest son, to whom I gave the medicines belonging to Hahnemann. Uh, Monsieur and Madame uh, died in my arms, blessing the day they had given me shelter and commended their family to my care. I have given in marriage two of their great-granddaughters and provided for them. My interest in medical studies persisted. I had studied physiology and pathology and found everywhere doubt and error. I heard everyone say that the doctors were asses, and I was justified in sharing the general opinion, especially as being sometimes ill, I received no help from the remedies that the best physicians administered to me, and when my excellent friends, whom I dearly loved, were ill, I had the opportunity of continually realizing the insufficiency or the sad danger of the remedies employed for their treatment. So she is systematically, as a, as a young person, studying anatomy, yep. then physiology. She can't do it openly. Right. Um, but she's dedicated to it. And, and going to back, she talks about earlier mm. in this treatise, she talks about how when she was a kid, when she was little, in the way that children would take apart their toys to see how they would work, she would dissect birds to understand what was happening inside of them. So she had not just... She you dissected know, birds? She dissected birds. Um, so she had artistic talent. And, and, you know, that's what she's giving credit for, is her talent as an artist and as a painter. But... You know, the thread... Well, she was writing poetry in the 1920s. Listen yeah. to this. In the 20s, she wrote poetry and became involved in French politics. Right. Mm. And French politics of the time is so interesting. I mean, it's a bit of a diversion. But Sorry, yeah. yeah but, but this idea that she had this medical interest, right? And then she developed a problem um, for which she was not um, getting any kind of medical relief in Paris, she had what is referred to as a tic de la rue in her abdomen. And it was to the point where she couldn't even paint. <clears throat> and that's when she found the organ, Hahnemann's Organon of Medicine and decided that very day that she was going to make her way to him. Hmm. A what? What? A tic? A tic de la rue. What is it? Uh, it's, I mean, I think we would now call it a spasm. Right, but here's something interesting because one of the things I love about studying Hahnemann's story is how much information is missing. <clears throat> Every time I read something where there's a missing footnote or something has been rewritten in someone's hand, or you know, here in um, Hale says at, at, there are two different points, actually three different points in this treatise about Melanie, um, where he says. Um, from from this point forward, which is the point where she goes to Hahnemann, from this point forward, the draft and the final copy are totally different. It makes you wonder, you know. Um, also, are you implying that you know she would have, as many people do, start altering the record or altering the paper trail? Um, to, you know, these days it would be. You know, getting a company to um, sanitize your right, online presence. Right, to scrub your online presence. Yeah. I, I'm not sure, but I think, you know, what has been interesting for me, and this is why I've tried so hard to find more information about Hale, mm. um, and there is not, there's not much. Um, if anybody knows, if anybody has any information about Richard Hale, um, who was German, I believe, by birth, he did come to America, and he, he studied with Herring here in Philadelphia. Oh, right. Yep. Because um, it's a strange spelling of the name, isn't it? What yeah, is it? it's H A E H L. H A Richard Hale. So, so anyway, the um, and you know, I I sort of got on this trail um, in the sixth edition of the Organon um, in the uh, footnote to Aphorism two seventy, where there's um, a part of the footnote that the original copy has been you know, removed. And, and some of it was written in Hale's hand. Now, I mean, that's a story for another day, but that's where the sixth edition of the Organon and that aphorism, that footnote is the um, very detailed instructions on how to make 
the LM potency, the Q potency. So in other words, the historian is getting very, very involved in the writing of the history. Appears to be. Maybe too much. Mm. I don't know. I mean, or, you know, if we if we hold on to that alchemical thread, if we pull that thread through, if the Q potency is when Hahnemann was finally able to release spirit from matter, and the sixth edition of the Organon was, you know, in Melanie's possession. And, you know, some people would say, going back to the gold digger thing, that she wanted so much money for it. But Hahnemann said to her, don't publish it until the time is right. And so I think two things can happen at the same time. She could have held on to it, and then realities converge, right? Because, you know, there were there were a lot of things happening in, in France at that time. Um, there were, and Melanie lost a lot of money later in life, and she was desperate to continue the work that Hahnemann had implored her to do, mm. you know, on his deathbed. So... I've learned a bunch of stuff, um, but she's um, artistic and scientific. Yeah, she's a poet and a painter and a and a writer, which makes her perfect as a homeopath, the art and science. Right, she's got a, a, a formal informal. Oh wait, so sorry. I just want to say one thing. Where I was going, and I and I forgot the 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 denouement was that. Um, so she arrives to Hahnemann with this tic de la rue. Well, the page of her that. The page of her case notes, when she went to him for oh. a medical consultation, that those case notes are missing. I mean, so... It's the, early HIPAA, I mean. Right. <laughs> yeah, the tearing out of the case book of, uh-huh. the, of the notes. Of the notes about Melanie's first visit. Yeah, right. So that's Hahnemann's case book. Hahnemann's case book. Do you think that, I mean, any speculation? I mean, uh, please, I'm always speculating. I'm Sicilian. Well, was you know, it her always or looking him for or signs. someone else? I, I mean, who knows? That's why I think we need, there's so much more that we need to know. That's why I think her story is one that we really need to understand. Because if we, you know, history is written through the lens of the questions a person asks. And so if the history of homeopathy, you know, written by people like Hale and Bradford and Hanley, if they weren't, you know, and and others, and, you know, but if... If the history of Hahnemann, if no one is asking the questions and and sort of reaching in to everything that doesn't add up and following those trails, you know, I mean, as you know, I presented in my um, uh, conference presentation at the JAHC last year, and and in this, um, here's a little plug: we're doing a a um, kickoff to the new year with three lectures, one from uh, Al, one from Kelly Callahan, and one from me. And mine is going to be more on the history, sort of the alchemical history of homeopathy, digging deeper into that. And what I uncovered is, and I think this is why I'm so interested in the Melanie story, is there are all these little um, dead ends in history where people just make assumptions. Oh, Hahnemann wasn't into alchemy because he denounced Paracelsus. Well, as if Paracelsus was the only alchemist in, you know, a thousand years. I mean, and so there were a lot of assumptions that were made. And so I'm trying to like dig into that anyway. So every time something doesn't add up or every time there's a clue, it's like, well, why, you know, you have to ask the question why, and then challenge the stated historiography to see if there's something deeper that we can find out. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Go back to where you were. I have no idea where I was. (laughs) We'll find a good place. Well, let's go that she's 34 years old and she puts on, I mean, and then she puts on a suit jumps in a carriage and travels across um, France. Uh-huh. Again, according to Hale. To Germany. Yeah. Okay. And so, I mean, that's a long journey. I mean, back in the day, that's a brave thing to do. And it's, I mean, I suppose I've, I've, I've always thought to myself, okay, well, you know, traveling as a single woman wouldn't necessarily be the safest. So why not put on the garb of a, of a bloke? Um, but, you know, is it as simple as that? It's not. It's. It, I mean, I think it's kind of funny, right? And again, according to Hale, she. So the story goes that Melanie arrived dressed as a man. Now, in substantiating what you said, like a woman traveling alone, there is in Melanie's own words, in her own hand, the stories of her saying she she actually didn't enjoy the company of some people, whether it be men or women, and she would rather, you know, she didn't want to have to sort of deal with people just for the sake of dealing with them. I've got a quote on that. I prefer going about with men for no sensible word can be addressed to a woman. Right. (laughs) So, okay, fair enough. Yeah. So, but here's the thing. 
And and I and and it's possible that I haven't seen this, um, but I've only seen it from Hale, who it may be from him directly, or he reproduced. He was sort of making corrections to Bradford, whose you know history came before. But I want to know if Melanie says she went dressed as a man, or mm. because in alchemy, <laughs> so in an alchemical story, um, there for every male alchemist is the female. Uh, counterpart. And it's not just because there's a male and a female part. It's that these two, these two binary halves come together in wholeness and there is a transcendence of the binary. Um, so coming out of this idea of, you know, the maleness, the femaleness to, you know, to join together in perfect unity and the, and the transcendence thereof. And so in a lot of the alchemical stories, there are women dressed as men or men dressed as women, or this concept of androgyny where one can't tell. And that's sort of a, you know, a transcendent moment. It's interesting because there's also um, in alchemy, this idea of the sacred hermaphrodite. So in other words, a person born of, of both, you know, uh, of both gender. Um, and that idea is, or to create, to to be the sacred hermaphrodite, again, transcends that, you know, that binary expression. And there were all sorts of experiments over time to create the perfect person, right? The perfect entity. So um, there were, and, and this, this kind of lore goes into many areas, the um, the idea of the homunculus. So Paracelsus attempted to make the homunculus, which was, you know, basically sort of the spontaneous generation of, of a human. And, you know, uh, we could go on, I mean, this is a, this is a doctoral thesis in and of itself, but, you know, carried to its logical conclusion, you can, you can see sort of some of the ancient stories like the Christ story. You can see the alchemical metaphor, um, studying the, you know, the, Christ story. So the idea of being born a virgin birth, right? And so that can be equated to Sora, mm. right? Um, so this idea that um, that Jesus was born without sort of the, you know, the, the sort of post Garden of Eden <laughs> stain, you know, um, is a really interesting metaphor for Sora. Now, sometimes people go, oh, that's just, you know, that's a story that's been made up and blah, blah, blah. But actually, seen through the alchemical lens and the historical context, it all of a sudden, it becomes a metaphorical um, uh, corollary, right? And carried forward into, say, the Catholic Mass, you know, this idea of the, tra- you know, of the transmutation of water and wine into the body and blood of Christ is a really interesting metaphor that, that translates directly into some of the, you know, alchemical um, allegories and metaphors that have been carried out throughout time. So taking this back to Melanie, it could just be that Melanie was dressed as a man because she didn't want to travel, you know, with people. But it's also a very interesting thing that someone who may have discovered the elixir of life, Hanuman, um, and his counterpart turns up, you know, and, you know, and there, and there you have it, Mm. you know, is this the sacred hermaphrodite or did Melanie just wear pants? You know, (laughs) I don't want to, I don't want to like put too much into it, but it is, it is really um, compelling. Mm. Is that going to freak people out? I have no idea. I don't think so. I hope well, not. What should freak them out is the fact that there's a clear breach of the code of ethics because she walked in the door of, of Hahnemann's office <laughs> and she didn't leave for three days. And, I mean... <laughs> okay, wait, but we just need to put this in context. He was 79. <laughs> so he's 79 years old. So that's... Do the math. She's 34. He's uh-huh. 79. October... Is that 45? 8th, October 8th, 1834. October the 8th, 1834. So that's 45 years different. Is that like Leonardo DiCaprio and his... I, I just call that Hahnemann's Cougar years. Hahnemann's Cougar years. Who else do you know, either in movies or, I don't know, has, has engaged in a relationship? 45 years. 45 years different. It's pretty amazing. So th- to me, when I hear that, it's like, um, you know, they were in love. Oh, my gosh. His letters about Melanie to Berninghausen and his letters, you know, to, to the other homeopaths were, he was a glowing, you know, reborn. Uh-huh. 
You know, he was, I mean, he was in the state. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but also, think about alchemy. You know, mm. the elixir of life is the ability to, you know, live, if not forever, for an extended period of time. It is, it is the elixir of life. It is putting life back into mm. an organism. Right. Anyway, so and, and there's more to be said about that with the end of his life. But here, um, Melanie says, Hahnemann wished to marry me and his friends who had learned to appreciate my character did all they could to persuade me to accept his offer. It was only natural that I should hesitate. It was not the outlook of having to nurse a noble old man that frightened me, but the fear of losing him too soon and missing him so much that I might die of grief. How about that? Hmm. It's funny, I, I'm not, I'm always, a, yeah, it's funny, you know, when you read a, an autobiography or when you read, because that, I'll just say it, when you read the sanitized, edited version of someone's own life, yeah, I'm always suspicious. I'm not suspicious, but it's like, hang on just a minute, you know, you know, there's a narrative here and you're trying to push the narrative. In that instance, I'm more taken with what Hanneman wrote in letters to... Totally. To other people, which totally is in alignment with what she said. Yeah. It's just astonishing. So it wasn't like, okay, you know, you're an old bloke and I'll nurse you. It, there's, it, it is, you know, profound. It's a profound relationship. Now, and Johanna has been dead a few years. And yeah. I think that's that was the his first thing. wife. Yeah. So Johanna, Johanna Henrietta. Johanna Henrietta, or sometimes Henrietta Johanna. She is God. If there's a biography that needs to be written, hers. Um, her, well, no one knows anything about her. Ah, uh, yeah. She is. She is an historical footnote. We know the names of the the thirteen or the eleven kids, surviving kids, um, and very little else. You know, yeah. we've got the letter to the editor, the notice in the newspaper on the day that she got married, yeah. um, daughter of, blah, blah. And daughter of, and what did her father do? Johanna's father? Yeah. He was a vicar, wasn't he? No. No? I didn't know. He was a chemist, pharmacist. Oh, he was a pharmacist. Of yeah. Course. And so Hahnemann, that was when he met her, what, right after Erlinger, yeah? Shortly thereafter. He was on his she travels. She was born in 1764. And she died in 1830. Oh, so it wasn't that long. Four years. Four years. And he was being Four looked after by the daughters. By the two daughters. So um, just in, in I terms know of... that um, hmm? uh, Johanna's dad was a chemist. Yeah. Huh. So um, on Hahnemann's watch chain, um, it was engraved, My life to yours is closely bound... To your happiness devoted, my place in your noble heart I found. No other in this world do I desire. She says, um, when, uh, when he died, um, oh, the whole story of his last days hmm. is really, I think there's so much to be um, talked about there, and I think that's it's probably its own podcast. But um, I think, though, just some of the some of the stories about Melanie and her devotion and love of him, but also her work. He completely tr entrusted her. I mean, she was his, you know, closest um, companion. She translated for him so that he could um, move more quickly through his cases. She says because he was taking, you know, he was always taking notes. He made her, he had her memorize Materia Medica Pura and, um, and really kind of drilled her until she was able to, you know, memorize that. And then when they were living in Paris, one of my favorite stories is told by that, uh, was an American, was she an actress who happened to be in Paris and, and, and comes to have, um, care by Hahnemann. And she tells the story of how in front of their house, which was a very, you know, sort of welcoming, um, you know, house on a major, um, street, there were, lines of carriages out front waiting to drop people off to be seen by, you know, by Hahnemann and by Melanie. And so Hahnemann would work in the morning seeing patients, but by the time this woman was there, I'd have to check the date, um, but 
Hahnemann was like, she describes him as this little old man in like in a cloud of smoke from his pipe and Melanie doing, you know, all the work. Um, and that Melanie would um, see patients with Hahnemann in the morning. And then in the afternoon, she would tend to the poor mm. and she would provide, you know, provisions for them basically so that they could heal because she says, you know, basically it's obstacle secure. If they don't have food, if they don't have the clothing, if they don't have what they need, they're not going to heal. So from one o'clock until the last person was seen, Melanie would, you know, she would treat all of the patients. So and she really, you know, she she worked hard. She mm. was a she was a workhorse. And when Hahnemann died, he asked her to continue on. And she was like, I'm tired. She says, my hair is white. I, I can't do this anymore. And, you know, he gives his line, you know, the life of ease. It's not for anybody who's going to do really, homeopathy. Yeah, he, he actually didn't say that then. He said, um, at the end of his life, let's see here. Um, Oh, actually, this is beautiful here. Uh, Two days before leaving me, he said to me, I have chosen you among all my disciples, and I leave you my scientific heritage, which is of some importance to humanity. Continue to work as we have done for such a long time. Carry on my mission. You know homeopathy, and you know how to cure as well as I do. I replied, but I am a woman. My body has grown tired. My hair has become white under the strain of this difficult work. I have well earned a little rest. Rest, said Hahnemann, and raised himself up in his bed. Have I ever rested? Forward, ever forward, against the wind, struggle against the strain, always cure, and everywhere, and by constantly curing, you will compel justice be done to you. Current opinion will support you respectfully after having opposed you on your path. So he recognized, well, you know. Well, you got that bit wrong. Yeah. Well, the police came knocking. Well, um, but also this part, we should go back to the part where he was writing letters to Herring to get Melanie uh, a diploma from okay. the Allentown Academy. Well, that's right? an interesting one. So so they moved to Paris in 1835 in February, right? Yeah. And there's the there's three moves within Paris, or two well, moves. And when the- they left, so in, the provision in their marriage decree is that she would take nothing from him, not a penny. Really? Even all of the marital gifts were left to the children, and it everything was to be given away. Yeah, I'll find, I'll find that for you. Yeah, there's a letter. <laughs> I have the letter from the lawyer. Really? Yeah. Public declaration of the truth. Um, oh, listen here. So this is um, uh, the report in 1835. This was in... Uh, I can't read this. It's in German, but it was a German public. It was a German paper. The reports concerning the marriage of Hofroth Dr. Samuel Hahnemann of Coten with Miss Marie Melanie Dervely Goyer of Paris, published in the Deutschstung and in some Berlin newspaper, are wholly lies and partly infamous slander, with the sole exception of the fact that such a wedding did take place. It cannot be but agreeable to the better class of public to learn the truth, and I who drew up the marriage settlement between the married couple and between Dr. Hahnemann and the children of his first wife, and have therefore the most accurate knowledge of the circumstances, believe this declaration to be due both to the couple I so highly esteem and to the public. Yeah. The marriage has not on either side any ambiguous, subordinate purpose whatever. The old man, grown gray with incessant work, much persecuted and aggrieved, but highly respected by all his more intimate acquaintances, soon experienced in his conversation with Madame Dervely, who had come to him as an invalid to be treated, a higher enjoyment of life than he had previously surmised. And this elicited a profound desire to end the last days of his stormy life in quiet cheerfulness and in cordial union with her who was responsible for her, this higher happiness." The wife, who comes from a highly respectable and wealthy family and is 35 years old, possesses considerable unencumbered property of her own. She is talented, was educated in art and science. She became a painter and a poet and has proved, but above all, she is a person greatly honored and renowned by the most respectful people in her country. Blah, blah, blah. It goes on to say. So then they, both of them of unselfish and sensitive dispositions made only two stipulations of the marriage. One, that she should receive no portion whatever of the whole property of Hofroth Hahnemann, either during his lifetime or at his death, but that all of it should go to his children and grandchildren without the slightest abatement. Number two, that Hofroth Hahnemann should immediately assign his property to the said children and grandchildren. Now, how does this become that she's a gold digger. And he signs it. He says, these are facts. And there, there are a couple more things, basically, of how the distribution of wealth and, and goods 
You know, they didn't take a stick of furniture, right? So he says, I conclude this declaration with the information that the noble-hearted wife of Dr. Hahnemann has gloriously attained her object and that she finds her own satisfaction and the reward for many a sacrifice in the unmistakable happiness of her husband. Shame on him who intends to disturb the peace of this couple by slanderous lies. And there were slanderous, slanderous lies. She was... You know, yeah. they, they were, and the community, because what by the 20s and the 30s, the homeopathy community was far spread around the world. Yeah. And, you know, and he was the noble, you know, founder. And, um, and yeah, the, the news broke that, you know, he'd met a, a young one and was moving to Paris and, uh, and, and, and it got ugly. And, and this poor woman who, you know, Hmm. worked so hard right and you know and and the fact i i just think it's irresponsible that in 2022 people continue to spread misinformation you know lies <laughs> telling all the lies it's a waif song it's a good song it's a very good song so all right so we get to 18 the 18 you know, thirties and uh, the mid eighteen thirties. They're in Paris, and and then living the high life. He's going to the opera. Yeah. He's treating the famous folks. He's treating Paganini. Paganini you know, with his syphilitic cankers. <laughs> all those, all, all that syphilis. All that syphilis. You could you could add a whole business on syphilis at oh that time. God. Dear and Louise. So, and because they're living in the Rue de Milan, and mm. the the carriages are pulling up on the outside, and presumably, you know, the the fee. Uh, fees are being paid and and things are going well. So, and, and one of the one of the notes I remember is that it's his practice is full of the French nobility, which is recovering after the right after the revolution. I yep. mean, it's thirty years, I suppose, but um, uh, you know things are settling down back to the old ways in France, and then he gets ill and eventually dies of pneumonia right yeah can we, wait can, i found the story of the american actress yeah it, it tells about the house yeah that's it let's let's just real quick that. and then we'll talk about his death though so yeah. the american actress she was anna cora moat and she visited hahnemann in paris in 1839 um and then she wrote uh, a series of essays um, in which was an account of her visit to Hahnemann. And she says, uh, in the winter of 1839-40, I paid my first visit to Hahnemann to ask his advice about a friend who was ill. In order to have a consultation as early as possible, I took a cab at 9 o'clock, and after approximately half an hour, the cab driver stopped but de- did not descend from his seat. I asked him if we had arrived. He answered, no, madame, it is not our turn yet. We must wait a little. There is Hahnemann's house, he said, pointing to a palatial building, which was visible some distance away. The house was surrounded by a massive wall, in the middle of which was an iron gate. Becoming impatient at the delay, I leaned out of the carriage window and saw a long row of carriages in front of us, which drove one after another through the gate and came out again as soon as their occupants had descended. This was very annoying to me. (laughs) She was American, after all. This was very annoying to me as I had such pains to arrive sufficiently early and now found out that it had been all useless. I saw behind me a similar row of carriages, which increased in number each minute. Thus, I had taken my place in a procession which moved slowly onward to pay homage to this modern Asclepius. Isn't that amazing to think? Mm. You know, so people spreading this, like the Hahnemann miasm, no money, blah, blah, blah. It's so ridiculous. You know, I think it says, as Hahnemann would say, it takes hard work. Mm. But he paved the way with the hard work. We mm. just now have to demonstrate, you know, the capacity to take it forward. Anyway, I don't want to get... Don't get me all hopped up. No, don't get it riled up. No, no, no. Well, I, I do want to rile you up because there's three things that happen immediately after his death. Oh, dear. So, number one, she doesn't tell anyone he's dead. Number I, two, well, he, um, she hides the book. And number three, she buries him in the pauper cemetery. But what ha- I mean, those are all mostly, mostly true, except that um, people did know he was dying. Who was there? Um, sorry, I have to find my notes on this. Um, yeah, while you're, while you're looking for it. Uh, the, so to that first point, it's summer in Paris in uh, 1843. Uh, if you've been in Paris, 
in the summer. It's not cold. And she lay with the body for a week. 11 days. 11 days. 11 days. Not a week, Mm-mm. but 11 days. Now, that's got to be, in my language, 35 degrees, 40 degrees. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not good. So um, I'm trying to remember who it was. She wouldn't let anyone see him the last days. Mm. She lay yeah. there with him for a couple of days. Somebody had gone a couple of days before. Yeah, you told me about this one. I mm. want to say Frederick, but he was the hunchback with the long coat. Yeah. Friedrich, right? So who, oh, you know who it must have been? Was it gross? No, no, no. It wasn't gross. No, it was um, who Melanie's adoptive daughter, Sophie, and Bunninghausen's son. Carl. Mm-hmm. Oh, it wasn't them. It wasn't that. Anyway, I, I'll find it. I'll find it. <laughs> but there are so many interesting things. So she, so first of all, she lay with him for 11 days. Yeah. And and then they, um, she didn't tell anybody. She didn't make a big announcement. So just a handful of people came. And in the rain, they had a funeral pr- procession to the pauper's funeral. Um the embalming. The cemetery in Walmart. Yeah, and the the embalming was not done by the by the usual embalmer. It was done by his son, mm. and Melanie says she oversaw it. And then there was um, in the coffin there was a little scroll in a little bottle in in the actual coffin, which was made of lead, by the way. Mm. Which I don't know if that's unusual. That just struck me as somewhat unusual, but. Um, it was in the the, uh, the proof of embalming was left in the coffin. Hmm. Um, yeah, here this was. Um, so then, years later, fifty five years after his death in eighteen ninety eight, there there had been well a couple times there had been this um, there would be these flurries of where is he buried? We can't find him. It was, Outrage. It was an unmarked um, grave. And 55 years later, the Americans get it together to raise enough money to move him to an appropriate, you know, burial place. Mm. And, and, you know, a whole bunch of people come and, you know, and then he's exhumed, right? Which, I mean, exhumation, all the alchemists get exhumed because, <laughs> you know, you want to make sure they're actually dead. Um, so in the presence of the police commissioner, the workman lifted the coffin out of the vault it was placed upon planks which covered the hole made when Madame Hahnemann was disinterred. Dr. Ganal, who supervised the work, remarked that Hahnemann's lead coffin was only screwed down and not soldered and expressed to the physicians the fear that the body might not have been well preserved. The workmen removed the screws and levered those which time had injured. The leaden cover begins to open a little, and those present see Hahnemann's feet wrapped in linen resting against the side of the coffin. They appear well-preserved, but as more screws are forced out and the cover opens wider, it is seen that there's water in the coffin, and the fear that the body might not be preserved increases. At last, the lid is completely removed, and Hahnemann's body, wrapped in silken bandages, becomes visible. The structure of the body is shown under the bandages used in embalming appears to be well-preserved. The corpse is slightly shrunken, but what astonishes particularly those present is the smallness of Hahnemann's stature. We ask those who knew Hahnemann, we received the answer that the founder of homeopathy was indeed a small man. The, um, the body is lying in water. The fluid is not produced by embalming, but by water which has filtered in from outside. Mm. The bottom of Montmartre Cemetery, as experts state, is constantly permeated with water, which flows along the clay soil formation. Anyway, so um, the, the embalmer had you know, covered his head with um, pieces of cotton wool saturated with essences. Um, and they removed them, and they had um, there had been enameled eyes placed in the orbits. And they said it was impossible to recognize Hahnemann's features, um, but there were a number of objects in the coffin that uh, guaranteed of, the authenticity. And a lock of Melanie's, Melanie's hair. hair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then the point is, from that, so that's so fascinating. Is then they put him in a carriage and they took him across town to the east, yeah. and to the and to the the cemetery, Pelachaise. Mm. Yeah. And you know there he is with all of the wealthy and rich and famous folks of Paris, along with um, some imports as well, like Jim Morrison. <laughs> I was just going to say that. I saw Jim Morrison's grave in 1987. And it wasn't even a tomb. There wasn't a tomb. It was just flat, 
flat dirt and a whole lot of graffiti. Really? Yeah. And the emanations of cannabis coming from the, from the earth. Um, and then when I went back in the 90s, um, they put a tombstone in for Jim oh. Morrison. I wonder who did that. But all sorts of other people are there too, like Oscar Wilde and Edith Piaf. <laughs> Here's, um, and then Hahnemann. And then Hahnemann. Mm. And now it's a beautiful... Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, here, this is, I found it, this is um, Dr. Suss Hahnemann's letter of June 24th, 1896 to Dr. Platt of Philadelphia. My grandfather had the poorest and meanest funeral. He was buried very early in the morning. Unfortunately, it rained the whole time. Whilst the bearers were carrying the coffin down the stairs in the house at Rue de Milan, a painful altercation occurred between Madame Hahnemann and the men. These had put the heavy coffin down too suddenly on the stairs, and Madame was afraid not that the coffin might be damaged, but the banister. She therefore was more anxious about the ladder than the coffin. So he apparently didn't have good things to say about her. Mm. We walked behind the hearse, a very poor-looking profession procession to the Montmartre. When we arrived at the open tomb, there was already another unpleasantness. It was an old vault built of brick, which already contained two other coffins. I ascertained that one coffin contained the body of a Mr. Gohier and the other the body of Mr. Leterre. The coffin of my grandfather was too big and would not go into the tomb. The men tried for a time to force it in. Finally, they were obliged to tear off the stone lid. And thus at last, poor Hahnemann found rest and peace. The grave is number eight. So... You know, there was... Sus Hahnemann yeah. is the husband of one of the daughters. And he adopted her name and then went to practice in London. Ah, that's who it is. I've got some details. Did, it, did he come to America? Don't know, don't know, don't know. And it's interesting that there's the wrong date um, on the death certificate. Yeah, Emily. So Emily married Sus Hahnemann. Oh. It yeah, Doctor Leopold Suss, and he adopted Hahnemann's name because it was good for business. Sure. Um, and as a homeopathic physician in London in 1895. That's interesting, isn't it? Mm. So, so Yar had been there. Yar had been. Um, it was Yar. Okay. It was Yar. Got it. Got yeah. It, got it. So he went to visit Hahnemann on his birthday, and he says that Hahnemann had his usual spring bronchial catarrh, and. Um, it had attacked him so violently that his wife would not admit anyone. Hmm. He was several times reported to be dead. This, however, was contradicted. So it's just quite interesting. I mean, there's so there are so many controversies. So I mean, uh, and then there's um, okay. So let's she buried him in the wrong tomb, and then I, I totally uh, hear your side of the, the third point that I made before, which was that she deliberately hid the book. And when I say hid the book, everyone everyone knew that Hahnemann was rewriting the, the fifth right. edition of the Organon to the sixth. And everyone knew, because he'd been very upfront about it, that he was changing the method of manufacture and he was yep. changing the administration of the remedies and all the rest of it. And then, you know, when it comes time for, well, you know, Melanie, where, where, where's the book? You know, she, she went dark on it. Yeah, there's, um, there is a, um, a letter from Hahnemann dictated in April, um, 1842. Mm. No, sorry. This is Paris, 1842. And it's about the sixth edition of the Organon. He says, if God wills, it will be appear in French. Um, can't be printed in German by his old publisher because of his archenemy Trinks, uh, who gives Arnold uh, who gives Arnold orders on how he is to annoy me. <laughs> I think that's really funny. His archenemy Trinks, who well, gives we've all got a nemesis. I know, but that he's so like to think about Hahnemann saying, you know, my archenemy who gives the publisher, you know, information on how to annoy me. Um, so he wishes <laughs> to prevent uh, Trinks to. Mm, no. Anyway, it looks as if he was going to publish, you know. But then, um, oh, he says, he writes that I took the whole of homeopathy from Paracelsus, but have concealed it. Trinks. Yeah. Hmm. That, and Hahnemann says it. I actually... Listen, get, get down that I that can't go down that path. But it's interesting because he, you know, the, um, he said to Melanie, don't publish it until the time is right. Mm. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. I, I think Rima Hanley has uh, writes about that. So 
you know, so poor Melanie. And it, it's just, I think it's a good lesson for us. You know, before you malign another, ask questions. Well, the, you know, again, some of those points along the way, because there's another one, because she died in 1878. Um, but in 1875, she then wrote to various professional associations and said, oh, I do have the book and you can have it, but I want some money. And it wasn't a small amount of money. It was yeah. an astronomical amount of money that she right. was asking for. And again, I think, you know, if you just put those four, the now four points right. together. Fair enough. I on think that that's, one. that's, it's kind of understandable that you'd go, whoa, you know, that that's, she's no, no friend to the community. Yeah. Um, I think you've you've really helped me understand much more about her grieving process and and all of that. It was profound. There's also and and this I don't have top of mind. She she does um, write about her reasons in her letters. Her reasons for asking for money. I mean, she did fall on some financial hardship, right? Well, there's a couple of other things we've not talked about. One is that in um, in uh, oh, I, I I'm short on the date now, but. Over on this side of the Atlantic, yep. the Allentown Academy got, got going in 1835, yep. and it closed soon afterwards because the funder pulled the, the, the money right. because of the crash and whatever it was, 1838. But, um, and while there were no students, there is, in Julian Winston's Faces of Homeopathy, a very interesting and questionable document which shows that after the school had closed they started handing out diplomas. Mm. And the first person that got a diploma was Herring. Uh-huh. The second one was Jean or Jean, I presume, because he had a French name. Uh, and then Lippy got one. Uh-huh. And then Melanie. Madame, Madame Hahnemann well, got a diploma, along with other, like there's a, some Russian physician, yeah. someone in Naples. Well, Hahnemann requested the diploma. Right. He writes to Herring. He wrote a letter to Herring, <laughs> March 28, 1841. Yeah. Uh, he says, Dear friend, how are you and your two boys? I hope I may receive very good news from you. I would like to know if you become more familiar with our homeopathic practice, which, of course, is very laborious. I and my dear wife together cure a strikingly large number of patients. She cures in the later hours of the day many poor patients, and to my surprise, some of the worst kinds of diseases. And he goes on to say how the, all the patients that they get, even in the summer, there are so many homeopaths, few really good ones, blah, blah, blah. He says, if I have been correctly informed, your academy grants diplomas to good homeopaths. If that is so, you would confer a favor upon me if you would send one to my dear wife, Marie Melanie Hahnemann Nee Derivilly, for she is better acquainted with homeopathy, both theoretically and practically, than any of my followers, and I may say lives for our art. And he sent him two little cameos to show what they look like. He says, these cameos will give you a fairly correct representation of my head. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And he says, the copper plate engraving of the whole is a good likeness. Only the artist has taken me in an unfortunate moment when I was probably vexed by the bad behavior of the bastard homeopaths of Germany. There is no trace in it of the kind heartedness seen in my features. And he wrote him again. He had to ask him a couple of times. He wrote him again asking for uh, a doctor's diploma for my dear wife. Well, you think about it because if time's up and time's ticking, you know, and and she's obviously been practicing medicine without a license. Yep. um, What's the plan? And having a diploma would have helped, but it didn't help in the end, did it? Because Mm -hmm. she did get... She got busted. She got busted. She got fined. Yeah. And fined. And then ended up, did she end up practicing under the, under the, um, what do you call it? Under the something? Yeah. Under like the, the wing? Yeah. Under, some... the, uh, under the wing of, of a, a physician, um, after, long after Hahnemann's death. Yeah. Wow. So what a story, huh? What a story. She is, you it's know. It's an arc. Um, I feel really good that I got to dress as her. Oh, you look fantastic! <laughs> I, in fact, as the I felt uh, an imposter because, I mean, here I am in at the sprightly age of fifty-five <laughs> at I, the time. At the time, and there you were, um, you know, looking. You you were looking thirty-five, thirty-four. <laughs> Gee, thanks. But I certainly wasn't feeling or looking um, eighty. Eighty, and um, don't so, sell yourself short. No. <laughs> 
<laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> but the wig. So so we got to dress. So um, the Americans for Homeopathy Choice, Paolo Brown had uh, an event. It was really fun. It was at the Joint American Homeopathy Conference um, last year, whatever, 2021, 2022, 2022. Mm. And, um, and so various um, uh, folks from the community got to dress as... Uh, esteemed homeopaths, and we had the absolute honor of getting to be Hanuman and Melanie. I was beyond excited Ron for that. Did a good Kent. Oh my gosh, he was an amazing Kent. Yeah, yeah, that was really good. And Alex Becker as an immaculate herring. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it was so much fun. It anyway, really was. we were really lucky for that. Um, okay, what a what a fun uh, way to spend a morning. Yeah. Good. Thanks for that. Um, Let's do right. it again. Uh, all right then. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Take care, folks.